Section 24 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 27. The Invasion of the Crimea, Part 2. The Allied armies moved again from their positions on the Alma, but they did not direct their march to the north side of Sebastopol. They made for Balaclava, which lies south of the city on the other side of a promontory, and which has a port that might enable them to secure a constant means of communication between the armies and the fleets. To reach Balaclava, the Allied forces had to undertake a long and fatiguing flank march, passing Sebastopol on their right. They accomplished the march in safety and occupied the heights above Balaclava, while the fleets appeared at the same time in the harbour. Sebastopol was but a few miles off, and preparations were at once made for an attack on it by land and sea. On October 17th, the attack began. It was practically a failure. Nothing better indeed could well have been expected. The fleet could not get near enough to the sea forts of Sebastopol to make their broadsides of any real effect, because of the shallow water and the sunken ships, and although the attack from the land was vigorous and was fiercely kept up, yet it could not carry its object. It became clear that Sebastopol was not to be taken by any coup de main, and the Allies had not men enough to invest it. They were therefore to some extent themselves in the condition of a besieged force for the Russians had a large army outside Sebastopol, ready to make every sacrifice for the purpose of preventing the English and French from getting even a chance of undisturbed operations against it. The Russians attacked the Allies fiercely on October 25th, in the hope of obtaining possession of Balaclava. The attempt was bold and brilliant, but it was splendidly repulsed. Never did a day of battle do more credit to English courage, or less perhaps to English generalship. The cavalry particularly distinguished themselves. It was in great measure on our side a cavalry action. It will be memorable in all English history as the battle in which occurred the famous charge of the Light Brigade. Owing to some fatal misconception of the meaning of an order from the commander-in-chief, the Light Brigade, Six hundred and seven men in all charged what has been rightly described as the Russian army in position. The brigade was composed of 118 men of the 4th Light Dragoons, 104 of the 8th Hussars, 110 of the 11th Hussars, 130 of the 13th Light Dragoons, and 145 of the 17th Lancers. Of the 607 men, 198 came back. Long, painful, and hopeless were the disputes about this fatal order. The controversy can never be wholly settled. The officer who bore the order was one of the first who fell in the outset. All Europe, all the world, rang with wonder and admiration of the feudal and splendid charge. The poet laureate sang of it in spirited verses. Perhaps its best epitaph was contained in the celebrated comment ascribed to the French general Bosquet, and which has since become proverbial, and has been quoted until men are well-nigh tired of it. It was magnificent, but it was not war. 
Next day, the enemy made another vigorous attack on a much larger scale, moving out of Sebastopol itself, and were again repulsed. The Allies were able to prevent the troops who made the sortie from cooperating with the Russian army outside, who had attacked at Balaclava. The latter were endeavoring to entrench themselves at the little village of Inkerman, lying on the north of Sebastopol. But the stout resistance they met with from the Allies frustrated their plans. On November 5th, the Russians made another grand attack on the Allies, chiefly on the British, and were once more splendidly repulsed. The plateau of Inkerman was the principal scene of the struggle. It was occupied by the guards and a few British regiments, on whom fell, until General Bosquet with his French were able to come to their assistance, the task of resisting a Russian army. This was the severest and the fiercest engagement of the campaign. The loss to the English was 2,612, of whom 145 were officers. The French lost about 1,700. The Russians were believed to have lost 12,000 men, but at no time could any clear account be obtained of the Russian losses. It was believed that they brought a force of 50,000 men to the attack. Inkerman was described at the time as the soldiers' battle. Strategy, it was said everywhere, there was none. The attack was made under cover of a dark and drizzling mist. The battle was fought for a while almost absolutely in the dark. There was hardly any attempt to direct the Allies by any principles of scientific warfare. The soldiers fought stubbornly a series of hand-to-hand -hand fights, and we are entitled to say that the better men won in the end. We fully admit that it was a soldier's battle. All the comment we have to make upon the epithet is that we do not exactly know which of the engagements fought in the Crimea was anything but a soldier's battle. Of course, with the soldiers, we take the officers. A battle in the Crimea with which generalship had anything particular to do has certainly not come under the notice of this writer. Mr. Kinglake tells us that at Alma, Marshal Saint-Darnaud, the French commander-in-chief, addressing General Canrobert and Prince Napoleon, said, With such men as you, I have no orders to give. I have but to point to the enemy. This seems to have been the general principle on which the commanders conducted the campaign. There were the enemy's forces. Let the men go at them any way they could. Nor, under the circumstances, could anything much better have been done. When orders were given, it appeared more than once as if things would have gone better without them. The soldier won his battle always. No general could prevent him from doing that. Meanwhile, what were people saying in England? They were indignantly declaring that the whole campaign was a muddle. It was evident now that Sebastopol was not going to fall all at once. It was evident, too, that the preparations had been made on the assumption that it must fall at once. To make the disappointment more bitter at home, the public had been deceived for a few days by a false report of the taking of Sebastopol, and the disappointment naturally increased the impatience and dissatisfaction of Englishmen. The fleet that had been sent out to the Baltic came back without having accomplished anything in particular, and although there really was nothing in particular that it could have accomplished under the circumstances, yet many people were as angry as if it had culpably allowed the enemy to escape it on the open seas. 
the sailing of the Baltic fleet had indeed been preceded by ceremonials especially calculated to make any enterprise ridiculous, which failed to achieve some startling success. It was put under the command of Sir Charles Napier, a brave old salt of the fast-fading school of Smollett's Commander Trunnion, rough, dashing, bull-headed, likely enough to succeed where sheer force and courage could win victories, but wanting in all the intellectual qualities of a commander and endowed with a violent tongue and an almost unmatched indiscretion. Sir Charles Napier was a member of a family famed for its warriors, but he had not anything like the capacity of his cousin, the other Sir Charles Napier, the conqueror of Sindhi, or the intellect of Sir William Napier, the historian of the Peninsular War. He had won some signal and surprising successes in the Portuguese Civil War and in Syria, all under conditions wholly different and with an enemy wholly different from those he would have to encounter in the Baltic. But the voice of admiring friends was tumultuously raised to predict splendid things for him before his fleet had left its port, and he himself quite forgot in his rough self-confidence the difference between boasting when one is taking off his armor and boasting when one is only putting it on. His friends entertained him at a farewell dinner at the Reform Club. Lord Palmerston was present, and Sir James Graham, the First Lord of the Admiralty, and a great deal of exuberant nonsense was talked. Lord Palmerston, carried away by his natural bonhomie and his high animal spirits, showered the most extravagant praises upon the gallant Admiral, intermixed with jokes which set the company laughing consumedly, but which read by the outer public next day seemed unbecoming preludes to an expedition that was to be part of a great war and of terrible national sacrifices. The one only thing that could have excused the whole performance would have been some overwhelming success on the part of him who was its hero. But it is not probable that a Dundonald or even a Nelson could have done much in the Baltic just then, and Napier was not a Dundonald or a Nelson. The Baltic fleet came home safely after a while, its commander having brought with him nothing but a grievance which lasted him all the remainder of his life. The public were amazed, scornful, wrathful, and they began to think that they were destined to see nothing but failure as the fruit of the campaign. In truth, they were extravagantly impatient. Perhaps they were not to be blamed. Their leaders, who ought to have known better, had been filling them with the idea that they had nothing to do but to sweep the enemy from sea and land. The temper of a people thus stimulated and thus disappointed is almost always indiscriminating and unreasonable in its censure. The first idea is to find a victim. The victim on whom the anger of a large portion of the public turned in this instance was the prince consort. The most absurd ideas, the most cruel and baseless calumnies, were in circulation about him. He was accused of having, out of some inscrutable motive, made use of all his secret influence to prevent the success of the campaign. He was charged with being in conspiracy with Prussia, with Russia, and with no one knew exactly whom, to weaken the strength of England and secure a triumph for her enemies. Stories were actually told at one time of his having been arrested for high treason. He had, in one of his speeches about this time, said that constitutional government was under a heavy trial, 
and could only pass triumphantly through it if the country would grant its confidence to Her Majesty's government. In this observation, as the whole context of the speech showed, the Prince was only explaining that the Queen's government were placed at a disadvantage in the carrying on of a war as compared with a government like that of the Emperor of the French, who could act on his own arbitrary will, without check, delay, or control on the part of any parliamentary body. But the speech was instantly fastened on as illustrating the Prince's settled and unconquerable dislike of all constitutional and popular principles of government. Those who opposed the Prince had not indeed been waiting for his speech at the Trinity House dinner to denounce and condemn him, but the sentence in that speech to which reference has been made opened upon him a new torrent of hostile criticism. The charges which sprang of this heated and unjust temper on the part of the public did not indeed long prevail against the Prince Consort. When once the subject came to be taken up in Parliament, it was shown almost in a moment that there was not the slightest ground or excuse for any of the absurd surmises and cruel suspicions which had been creating so much agitation. The agitation collapsed in a moment, but while it lasted, it was both vehement and intense, and gave much pain to the prince, and far more pain still to the queen his wife. We have seen more lately and on a larger scale something like the phenomenon of that time. During the war between France and Germany, the people of Paris went nearly wild with the idea that they had been betrayed, and were clamorous for victims to punish anywhere or anyhow. To many calm Englishmen this seemed monstrously unreasonable and unworthy, and the French people received from English writers many grave rebukes and wise exhortations. But the temper of the English public at one period of the Crimean War was becoming very like that which set Paris wild during the disastrous struggle with Germany. The passions of peoples are, it is said to be feared, very much alike in their impulses and even in their manifestations and if England, during the Crimean War, never came to the wild condition into which Paris fell during the later struggle, it is perhaps rather because on the whole things went well with England than in consequence of any very great superiority of Englishmen in judgment and self-restraint over the excitable people of France. Certainly those who remember what we may call the dark days of the Crimean campaign, when disappointment following on extravagant confidence had incited popular passion to call for some victim, will find themselves slow to set a limit to the lengths that passion might have reached if the Russians had actually been successful, even in one or two battles. The winter was gloomy at home as well as abroad. The news constantly arriving from the Crimea told only of devastation caused by foes far more formidable than the Russians. Sickness, bad weather, bad management. The Black Sea was swept and scourged by terrible storms. The destruction of transport ships laden with winter stores for our men was of incalculable injury to the army. Clothing, blanketing, provisions, hospital necessities of all kinds were destroyed in vast quantities. The loss of life among the crews of the vessels was immense. A storm was nearly as disastrous in this way as a battle. On shore, the sufferings of the army were unspeakable. The tents were torn from their pegs and blown away. The officers and men were exposed to the bitter cold and the fierce stormy blasts. 
our soldiers had for the most part little experience or even idea of such cold as they had to encounter this gloomy winter the intensity of the cold was so great that no one might dare to touch any metal substance in the open air with his bare hand under penalty of leaving the skin behind him the hospitals for the sick and wounded at scutari were in a wretchedly disorganized condition they were for the most part in an absolutely chaotic condition as regards arrangement and supply in some instances medical stores were left to decay at varna or were found lying useless in the holds of vessels in balaclava bay which were needed for the wounded at scutari the medical officers were able and zealous men the stores were provided and paid for so far as our government was concerned but the stores were not brought to the medical men these had their hands all but idle their eyes and souls tortured by the sight of sufferings which they were unable to relieve for want of the commonest appliances of the hospital the most extraordinary instances of blunder and confusion were constantly coming to light great consignments of boots arrived and were found to be all for the left foot mules for the conveyance of stores were contracted for and delivered but delivered so that they came into the hands of the russians and not of us shameful frauds were perpetrated in the instance of some of the contracts for preserved meat one man's preserved meat exclaimed punch with bitter humor is another man's poison the evils of the hospital disorganization were happily made a means of bringing about a new system of attending to the sick and wounded in war which has already created something like a revolution in the manner of treating the victims of battle mr sidney herbert horrified at the way in which things were managed in scutari and the crimea applied to a distinguished woman who had long taken a deep interest in hospital reform to superintend personally the nursing of the soldiers miss florence nightingale was the daughter of a wealthy english country gentleman she had chosen not to pass her life in fashionable or aesthetic inactivity and had from a very early period turned her attention to sanatory questions she had studied nursing as a science and a system and had made herself acquainted with the working of various continental institutions and about the time when the war broke out she was actually engaged in reorganizing the sick governesses institution in harley street london to her mr sidney herbert turned he offered her if she would accept the task he proposed plenary authority over all the nurses and an unlimited power of drawing on the government for whatever she might think necessary to the success of her undertaking miss nightingale accepted the task and went out to scutari accompanied by some women of rank like her own and a trained staff of nurses they speedily reduced chaos into order and from the time of their landing in scutari there was at least one department of the business of war which was never again a subject of complaint the spirit of the chivalric days had been restored under better auspices for its abiding influence ladies of rank once more devoted themselves to the service of the wounded and the end was come of the mrs gamp and mrs prigg type of nurse sidney herbert in his letter to miss nightingale had said that her example if she accepted the task he proposed would multiply the good to all time these words proved to have no exaggeration in them we have never seen a war since in which women of education and of genuine devotion have not given themselves up to the task of caring for the wounded the geneva convention and the bearing of the red cross are among the results of florence nightingale's work in the crimea 
but the siege of Sebastopol was meanwhile dragging heavily along, and sometimes it was not quite certain which ought to be called the besieged, the Russians in the city or the allies encamped in sight of it. During some months the allied armies did little or nothing. The commissariat system and the land transport system had broken down. The armies were miserably weakened by sickness. Cholera was ever and anon raging anew among our men. Horses and mules were dying of cold and starvation. The roads were only deep, irregular ruts filled with mud. The camp was a marsh. The tents stood often in pools of water. The men had sometimes no beds but straw dripping with wet and hardly any bed coverings. Our unfortunate Turkish allies were in a far more wretched plight than even we ourselves. The authorities who ought to have looked after them were impervious to the criticisms of special correspondence and unassailable by parliamentary votes of censure. A condemnation of the latter kind was hanging over our government. Lord John Russell became impressed with the conviction that the Duke of Newcastle was not strong enough for the post of war minister, and he wrote to Lord Aberdeen urging that the War Department should be given to Lord Palmerston. Lord Aberdeen replied that although another person might have been a better choice when the appointments were made in the first instance, yet in the absence of any proved defect or alleged incapacity, there was no sufficient ground for making a kind of speculative change. Parliament was called together before Christmas, and after the Christmas recess Mr. Roebuck gave notice that he would move for a select committee to inquire into the condition of the army before Sebastopol, and into the conduct of those departments of the government whose duty it had been to minister to the wants of the army. Lord John Russell did not believe for himself that the motion could be conscientiously resisted, but as it necessarily involved a censure upon some of his colleagues, he did not think he ought to remain longer in the ministry, and he therefore resigned his office. The sudden resignation of the leader of the House of Commons was a death-blow to any plans of resistance by which the government might otherwise have thought of encountering Mr. Roebuck's motion. Lord Palmerston, although Lord John Russell's course was a marked tribute to his own capacity, had remonstrated warmly with Russell by letter as to his determination to resign. "'You will have the appearance,' he said, "'of having remained in office, aiding in carrying on a system of which you disapprove, until driven out by Roebuck's announced notice, and the government will have the appearance of self-condemnation by flying from a discussion which they dare not face, while as regards the country, the action of the executive will be paralyzed for a time in a critical moment of a great war with an impending negotiation, and we shall exhibit to the world a melancholy spectacle of disorganization among our political men at home similar to that which has prevailed among our military men abroad. The remonstrance, however, came too late, even if it could have had any effect at any time. Mr. Roebuck's motion came on and was resisted with vigor by Lord Palmerston and Mr. Gladstone. Lord Palmerston insisted that the responsibility ought to fall not on the Duke of Newcastle but on the whole cabinet, and with a generosity which his keenest opponents might have admitted to be characteristic of him, he accepted the task of defending an administration whose chief blame was in the eyes of most people that they had not given the control of the war into his hands. 
Mr. Gladstone declared that the inquiry sought for by the resolution could lead to nothing but confusion and disturbance, increased disasters, shame at home, and weakness abroad. It would convey no consolation to those whom you seek to aid, but it would carry malignant joy to the hearts of the enemies of England. The House of Commons was not to be moved by any such argument or appeal. The one pervading idea was that England had been endangered and shamed by the breakdown of her army organization. When the division took place, 305 members voted for Mr. Roebuck's motion, and only 148 against. The majority against ministers was therefore 157. Everyone knows what a scene usually takes place when a ministry is defeated in the House of Commons. Cheering again and again renewed, counter-cheers of defiance, wild exaltation, vehement indignation, a whole whirlpool of various emotions seething in that little hall in St. Stephen's. But this time there was no such outburst. The House could hardly realize the fact that the ministry of all the talents had been thus completely and ignominiously defeated. A dead silence followed the announcement of the numbers. Then there was a half-breathless murmur of amazement and incredulity. The Speaker repeated the numbers, and doubt was over. It was still uncertain how the House would express its feelings. Suddenly someone laughed. The sound gave a direction and a relief to perplexed, pent-up emotion. Shouts of laughter followed. Not merely the pledged opponents of the government laughed. Many of those who had voted with ministers found themselves laughing, too. It seemed so absurd, so incongruous, this way of disposing of the great coalition government. Many must have thought of the night of fierce debate little more than two years before, when Mr. Disraeli, then on the verge of his fall from power, and realizing fully the strength of the combination against him, consoled his party and himself for the imminent fatality awaiting them by the defiant words, I know that I have to face a coalition. The combination may be successful. The combination has before this been successful. But coalitions, though they may be successful, have always found that their triumphs have been brief. This I know, that England does not love coalitions. Only two years had passed, and the great coalition had fallen, overwhelmed with reproach and popular indignation, and amid sudden shouts of laughter. End of section 24